Thanks, Meg. Great to have that, uh, that reading before us. Please keep your Bibles open. That's what we're focusing on tonight as we, um, as we get, into, uh, get into this part of God's Word. So we're starting a series in Philippians, and this is going to be the foundation for that. So let me pray and ask that God would help us, and we'll, we'll get underway. Heavenly Father, thanks for the chance to turn our hearts and minds to you tonight. I pray that you'd make us receptive to your word. I thank you that your Holy Spirit is here and that he will do his work of applying your word to our hearts to challenge us and to change us and to make us more like Jesus. Uh, We ask that you'd help this be the outcome for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we want to start this series with uh, a how question. The question is, the question we want to consider is, how... How is it that uh, the death of a carpenter in Jerusalem in AD 33, uh, Jerusalem and, and Israel itself, backwaters of the Roman Empire, and when I say backwater, I like to sort of make the analogy uh, Tasmania, okay? Uh, as close to the centre of the world as Tasmania is, I think that's kind of the, the, the spot that, uh, that Israel occupies in the Roman mindset. So how does the death of a carpenter in AD 33 mean that in 350 years, actually on the 27th of February, 380 AD, how is it that on that day, this religion becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire? What is the transition from a dead carpenter to a whole, the most powerful empire the world has seen, being transformed into saying that religion is our religion? How does that happen? Well, the answer, of course, the first part of the answer is pretty obvious. Uh, God who reveals himself as Father, Son, and Spirit is the one behind it, isn't he? And uh, if you've been with us in the last term, you will remember that we've been doing God on mission in the Old Testament. And so we're not surprised. God has been bringing the message of Jesus uh, through his prophets. He'd been preparing the way for Jesus uh, all the way through the Old Testament. So we're not surprised. But there's a practical way that that message gets out. And the practical way is a Jew named Paul. That's the practical way. And his incredible multiple missionary journeys. So when we say that, I'm not sure how familiar you are with uh, his missionary journeys. Uh, We we heard something of one of them in uh, Acts 16 tonight. And so we saw there he traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of the district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. Now, why do I tell you about this little stop on his large adventures? Well, over the course of this term, the letter to the church that he founds here is going to be our focus for the whole of the term. And uh, so we're going to try and find out as much as we can about this city of Philippi. So let's consider the setting for our, um, our reading tonight. So map of the ancient world with a whole bunch of names on it that you probably don't recognize. They're not on our regular maps today, uh, except for Syria. You can see that there, can't you? So Paul starts his missionary journeys in a place called Antioch. And his first journey, he goes into modern-day Turkey uh, via boat, visits some cities, and comes back to Antioch. He then goes again on a journey which will take him through, uh, well, he tries to go in Galatia and Bithynia. Now, I put them up there because you can't find Galatia and Bithynia on a modern map. You won't know where they are. But Jesus has said the Spirit of Jesus stopped them from going there. 
And eventually he crossed across the water to this place over here called Philippi. If we go in a little closer, Philippi is in the ancient province of Macedonia. And you're like, okay, great. Why did he particularly go to Philippi? Well, Philippi was on a very important road. Uh, The very important road is called the Via Ignatia or the Ignatian Way. Okay, And it was a major trading route to get from the east of the empire back to Rome in the west. And the Roman roads are extraordinary, Okay, laid in stone generally, and they are still there today. You can go and find them today still holding up. And as I said to the, the guys this morning, Roman roads are obviously better than our roads because we get a sprinkle of rain and we've got potholes all over them, don't we? Here they are 2,000 years later. The Romans haven't been tending them for some time, and they're still there. Straight, true, remarkable. To give you an idea of how long that road is, basically it's, it's uh, 1,120 kilometres. It's here to Broken Hill is how long that road is. Okay, Really long distance. But Philippi is on this major road. The area around Philippi had gold mines, so that was rich. But there's a little bit more information that we need to know about Philippi. Here's Philippi, the ruins of Philippi today. And you can see the road going past Uh, It looks exactly like that painted in red in real life. Uh, Some things to learn about Philippi. So Philippi was re-founded after a battle. Uh, Do you remember Julius Caesar and Brutus? Yes? Uh, Brutus stabbed Julius Caesar in the back. Do you remember this? You guys have watched enough horrible histories to know that? You don't know that? All right. Uh, Et tu Brute is the thing. And you Brutus is what uh, Julius Caesar repeatedly said. Uh, So... Uh, after Julius Caesar was stabbed, two groups emerged, uh, like called Mark Antony and Octavius, and Brutus and Cassius. Basically, a civil war broke out in Rome, and they had a massive battle just outside of where modern-day, uh, well, ancient Philippi was. After the battle, uh, Mark Antony won, and uh, he became the uh, the Caesar after Julius Caesar. After the battle, uh, he founded this city and put soldiers from the battle, his winning side, into this town, essentially to strengthen the area. And he said to them, even though you're miles away from Rome, a thousand kilometers from Rome, we're going to make you Roman citizens here. And so this little town is essentially going to become uh, a little Rome. So it's going to have its own amphitheater. Can you see that across in the right? You see the big curved thing there? Its own amphitheater, its own temples. And, And basically this little bubble was to be a part of Rome, except in the middle of Macedonia. When you've got ex-soldiers who have been very patriotic and a thing that was breaking out at this period of time called the cult of the emperor, uh, basically what happened was the Romans started to decide that their emperors were actually gods. That's an unusual thing to do, isn't it? They, they, they didn't say quite that, uh, that the emperor is the same as Zeus, but he was sort of divine. The only problem with doing this is that the Greek language, the Latin language could kind of say there's a really proper God and there's kind of a a secondary kind of God. The Latin language allows you to do that. But Greek just has one word. And so what you end up saying is that Caesar is the son of God. Now, as Christians, we respond pretty strongly to that, don't we? Who's the son of God? Good answer, great answer. Thanks, Nelson. Thanks, team. Love it. You're listening well. So, but here's the thing we don't know, probably don't know, that in the Roman world of that time, they were actually, there was language around saying, we worship the Son of God, who is Caesar. 
That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Now, on top of that, in this part of Macedonia, there was another god being worshipped, a god called Theos Hypistis, uh, Hip, uh, Hypsistos. There we go, there we go. Theos Hypsistos. Now, you guys are very familiar with Theos Hypsistos, aren't you? No, no one is. I didn't know about Theos Hypsistos. But amongst the gods in that area was a god that they called God Most High. Theos is the word God. And you've heard of hyperextension, that's, that's overextension, the highest. So God Most High. And so there was a god that they were worshipping called God Most High. Now that's going to become very important a little bit later as we look around. So let's see what that first visit to this little town of Philippi was like. Now, does anyone have a doorpost like this at home? You do. Somebody does. Excellent. Uh, and what's, what, what is the scribble on this doorpost? It's very cute. Has anyone else done it? You, we, yeah, you, you have? Lovely. That's amazing. Uh, so what happens when you do it is you can actually see that you grow quite a lot. And it's, it's amazing. You come back to it and, and mum or dad does a little drawing on the, on, above your head on the wall. And you look at it and you think, oh, it's higher than it was before. How exciting. I'm growing. Did you know you're growing every day when you're a kid? You really are. A little bit at a time. But it adds up over time. I want you to have a look with me at Acts chapter 16, and we look at verses 1 to 5. Uh, we see the start of this second missionary journey. If you pick it up in verse 4, we see, As they travelled <coughs> from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in their numbers. What basically the Jerusalem council had said was, We've started new churches. When you start a church in the ancient world and uh, there are no Christians in the whole world, you start building with Jews because they're the people most likely to respond. So Jewish churches started to spring up. But the news was so good that Gentiles started joining them. Gentiles are everyone who's not a Jew. Because the Christians, the early Christians were Jews, they thought, well, if you're going to follow Jesus, what we need you to do is become a really good Jew as well, because that's how we got here. Does that make sense? So they started to say, you'll need to obey our food laws. You'll need to be circumcised. You'll need to do a whole lot of Jewish things. And the Gentiles, understandably, kind of put up a bit of a fight, say, hey, we don't really want to do all that if we can avoid it. And so what happened was there was a council in Jerusalem where the whole church got together and they said, you know what? We're not going to ask this of the, of the Gentiles. We're going to say they must believe in Jesus by faith and uh, restrain themselves from sexual immorality and the meat of strangled animals. And you kind of go, great, I'm going to miss out on that anyway. Excellent, I can be a Christian now. And so what Paul and his team were doing was they were traveling around to these churches and saying, you don't need to become a Jew to be a good Christian. So that's what they were doing. They'd started off visiting uh, the, the, the churches. And I've called it the bus stop tour because they stopped at all these different towns along the way. Um, you saw they went to Derby and then Lystra and then other places. So they're really just going along town at a time, uh, which is pretty great. But the bit I wanted you to see is in verse 6 there, the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Can you see that? That's pretty encouraging, isn't it? The church started with 120 people in a room in Jerusalem. On Pentecost. And today the church is, a, is, is 2 billion people. 
Every single day, people are being added to the church of Jesus. And what I want to encourage you is the church is growing daily then. And by God's grace, it's still growing today. Extraordinary. This church is growing. Who would have thought? Maybe not every day, but it is growing, which is great. Uh, Have you ever uh, had the experience of hopping into your car and then listening to the voice? The voice that says, on the third exit, turn right. In 200 metres, the destination is on your left. Have you had this experience? Yeah, we've all had this experience. I think it's incredible that we've become familiar with guidance by listening to the voice. We just listen to the voice. I've now got to the point where when it's right the way across Sydney, I just go and I just start driving. I don't care where it is. The voice will tell me. The voice will guide me not to go down there, to take this exit, to leave. You know that experience. It seems that the voice of Jesus was guiding his apostle. Have a look with me at verse 6. Paul and his companions travelled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Did you notice that when we read through? It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? And then we see it again in verse 7. They tried uh, to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Now, how exactly that happened, I don't know. But they were absolutely convinced that God was guiding them not to go there. But then we see something happens uh, during the night, verse 9, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come to Macedonia and help us. Now, have you had a dream before? I have a dream. You've had lots of dreams. But here it is. What was God in the vision? I actually had an interesting chat with Peter just before. and He said it's a man who's calling them. And Peter's thought was maybe it's Jesus who is, uh, is calling them to come. I'm not sure, but there's a man who's calling and he says, come over to Macedonia and do what? Help us. Here's what I want you to see about guidance. Here's what I want you to see about guidance. It needs to be discerned. So the dream was simple. Come and help us. Have a look what they did in verse 10. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now there's actually some discernment required. They had to figure out, Dream, man, calling, hey, that could be us. We should go and preach the gospel. Now, discernment is the missing thing. I had a great conversation with someone this morning who said, is there any space in your life for discernment? Discernment is the stopping and reflecting. Where is God leading us? Where is he directing us to go? We kind of go, God, I want you to direct me. I want you to guide me. If you can do it now, before... Um, my next Netflix binge, that would be great. And before I have to tweet and Facebook and... It's amazing, isn't it? We want God on our schedule and we won't set aside time, I don't think generally, for discernment. At any rate, Paul was able to discern what he should do. And unlike Jonah, do you remember Jonah recently? God said, go and preach to the city of Nineveh and Jonah said, no way. God said to Paul... Go to Macedonia and preach the gospel. And Paul said, aye, aye, captain, when do we depart? He was obedient to the revelation that was there before him. Now, he went across, uh, across uh, to, uh, to Philippi. And when he came to Philippi, he found this river. And I, lo- I love trying to find actual stuff so you guys can see it really happened in space and time. This is the river 
uh, that flows just next to uh, the city of Philippi. And um, this is probably, uh, this is the spot where uh, they met the women. So if we have a look at verses uh, 13 to 15. It says, On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Now, this is really interesting. What, what do you know about Paul's practice when he's on mission? Does anyone know what Paul did? If he went to a new town, what did Paul do? Does anyone know? He went to the synagogue. He went to the place where the Jews were because he himself was a Jew. And his first passion was, I want the Jews to be saved. So he goes to a new city. First thing he does is he goes to the synagogue. Now, here in Philippi, where is the first place we're told he went to? A river. Now, I was reading, uh, I think I was wrong this morning, I said it was 12 men. Apparently, if you have 10 Jewish men, you can start a synagogue. So there you go. I think I said 12 this morning. 10. If you have 10 Jewish men, you can start a synagogue. In Philippi, when Paul got there, he went outside the city gate to the river. Why? I'm suggesting to you because there were not 10 Jewish men in the city. There were, however, some women. And uh, he went out to see... Uh, the women at a place of prayer. And at the place of prayer, he shared the gospel. Have a look. Um, we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Now, what did they speak about? Hello, ladies, just wondering what the local cuisine is like. Um, can, you, can you recommend some good restaurants for us to check out? What had Paul concluded was the reason he should go to Macedonia? He should go to Macedonia because he, God wanted him to preach the gospel. So when he got there, what did he do? He spoke the gospel. And one of those listening, verse 14, was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. This is brilliant. What I want you to note, this is amazing. I want you to note the first person who is a convert in the whole of Europe, the whole of Europe, we have her name, and she is, I'm saying, Probably a widowed, independent, God-fearing, mature businesswoman. Isn't that wonderful? Her name's Lydia. I'm saying that she's widowed, I believe, because when she becomes a Christian, what does she offer the apostles? What does she say that they can do? Come to her house. I'm suggesting to you she's running her house. She's a God-fearer. She's praying to God by the river. She meets these men and goes, Jesus is for me. And because I am now part of your family, foreigners, weirdos in our town, we're now family in Jesus. I want you to come and stay in my house. Isn't that beautiful? And so the change is so massive for her, it's immediately expressed in fellowship. It's immediately expressed in fellowship. Now, good challenge for us, isn't it? Do we see each other here? Great. Where does our fellowship get bigger than just Sunday night? Okay. We want to be doing life together because in Jesus, we've become family. It's a pretty good challenge, isn't it? But anyway, I love the first convert in Europe is Lydia, and you know her by name. Don't forget her. She's absolutely amazing. All right. Now, did everything go swimmingly from there? Of course it did. All the pagans in Philippi decided they loved Jesus, wanted to give up worshipping the emperor and leave all their temples. Is that what happened? You can say no. You don't remember reading that, do you? That did not happen. Okay. Opposition and riot broke out. And it broke out for a reason. 
If we look at verses 16 to uh, to 24, it broke out for a reason. Uh, There was a lady who was following Paul around. This is really quite an extraordinary story. Uh, Once when we were going to the place of prayer, verse 16, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. It says that she had a a python spirit. Uh, There was in Greece at that time worship of a thing called the Delphic Oracle which was basically a pagan temple where you could go and find out about the future. And there was a spirit, a snake spirit there. Now, why do you want to know about the future? It's very strong in my encouragement to the morning service. I want to repeat it here. The idea that you can go to a place that has an evil spirit and find out about the future for your good is a lie. You cannot seek to know about the future from a spirit that is not the spirit of Jesus and expect anything other than destruction and slavery to follow. The spirit wants you to be afraid and wants you to be enslaved. Do not mess with divination or seeking your fortune with evil spirits. Now this spirit was actually doing something that on first take looks like it's good, doesn't it? Uh, the, the woman was yelling out. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting. Now, I won't, I won't shout to you because it would be a little bit awkward, but imagine how awkward this was. Following Paul around, she kept on shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you to be saved. Now, we think, brilliant. They're saying the God of the Jews is telling you the way to be saved. Now, what did I tell you? There was two gods that were being worshipped. Do you remember? There was a God called God Most High that was being worshipped in Philippi. A pagan God called God Most High. So when she stands there and she says, these are servants of God Most High who are telling you the way to be saved, people are going, oh, sure, we know where that temple is. Why do we need to follow these guys? Do you see the problem? Now, it actually says Paul grows upset because it's so annoying. That's, That's fascinating. I just love it. I'm just annoyed. This woman just keeps on following us around and yelling. And what is, what's his response? Well, his response is to say, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the market to face the authorities. So what happened was these men had this freak girl. Now, I don't like to say it that way, but I think that's what happened. The people knew that she was possessed by a demon and they would come to her and try and get advantageous information and the men in charge of this slave woman would charge money. Now, Paul cast the spirit out and they went, oh, gee, now she's just a girl. We can't make any money out of her and they were upset at their economic loss. I want to tell you, in this moment, we have actually missed mercy. There's a mercy here. What's the mercy we've missed? The mercy we've missed is that a troubled slave girl who was the possession of men and possessed by a spirit has just been set free. It's amazing, isn't it? The men, men are terrible, aren't they? (laughs) The, The men think our economic advantage is lost. And the story goes on to a riot, which is pretty interesting. But what I want you to stop and see is the second convert here after the household of Lydia. The second convert mentioned is a poor servant girl who's spiritually afflicted. 
What does that show us? God is setting this girl free. And there is no time in the New Testament where Jesus cuts out a demon that the answer isn't right mind, sane, and better. And so if Paul casts this demon out, I'm thinking this girl is saved and she is totally transformed from being a tool in the hands of these men to being in her right mind and set free. That's brilliant, isn't it? How's the European mission going so far? Loving it. But what happens is it turns into a riot, right? They take him before the, the, uh, back into town and people are horrible when they get like this. These men are angry. These are foreigners. It's so important to say this, right? These are foreigners who've just come into town. They're Jews, right? And there's no synagogue in the town, so there's no respect for Judaism, right? These are Jews who are telling you to do something other than worship the gods. What should we do? Everyone's throwing dust in the air and getting angry. And what do they do? Well, they get, notice how brutal this is. They get rods and they beat them in the marketplace. Now, it is impossible to think about this in a nice way. It's not, it's not flogging. It's not organized. It is a violent, it says after they were severely flogged, they were put in, in jail and locked in stocks. It's appalling. Now, how do you think you'd be feeling after that? Well, this, this, you can imagine the conversation amongst the apostles. Well, you said we should go to Macedonia, hey? Started out all right, but now look where we've ended up. We're in jail and we're beaten, right? But what does this text say? Something amazing is happening. If we look at verses 25 to 40, in the middle of the night, what are these meaning? About midnight, Paul and Silas, verse 25, were praying and what were they doing? Look at the text. Singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to the weirdos in the other cell. Yeah? I want you to see the Philippian church is founded in joy. Beaten men are praising God in the middle of the night as their wounds bleed they are praising God. And what happens? God answers with incredible, incredible power. And there's an earthquake and all the doors open and the chains fell off. And what does the jailer think? The jailer thinks, oh my goodness, all the prisoners are gone. And as a good Roman, what's the thing you would naturally think to do? Commit suicide. So far from our, our view. But they had such an honor-shame culture that if my responsibility, if I failed in my responsibility, what am I going to do? fall on my sword and kill myself. He's filled with shame. He's filled with shame. And what does Paul say? Brother, don't do it. Don't do it. We're all still here. And so then the jailer runs in, falls on his knees and trembling, he says to them, what shall I do to be saved? Isn't this incredible? What shall I do to be saved? And they tell him, well, you should believe in the Lord Jesus. It's pretty good, isn't it? And so who is the third person saved? Well, the third person saved saved is a shame-filled Roman public servant. The guy's looking after the jail. He's the first bloke mentioned. And he, and what does it say? His whole household was saved. They were baptized then and there. And what's the next thing he does? Well, he starts bathing their wounds. The prison guard has been set free. Isn't that brilliant? The prison guard has been set free. That's the power of the gospel. And shame is replaced with incredible worth. That's the power of the gospel. No need to kill yourself. Find in Jesus forgiveness, freedom, and honor. Wonderful. So that's how the church was founded. 
Now to the letter. Let me just quickly tell you. Who wrote the letter to the Philippians? It was a guy called Paul. You'll be surprised to know. It says it, isn't it? Where was it written from? When Paul was in jail himself in Rome. So at a later point, Paul is writing a letter to the church he founded in Philippi. Okay? From Rome. When? About AD 61. Okay? Towards the end of Paul's life. He writes this letter and says, guys, I love you so much. Why does he write? Well, he writes around this center point of the good news of Jesus, around the gospel. He says we are partners in the gospel. He says we're empowered by the gospel. He says we need to live worthy of the gospel. The heart of his message is the gospel. And what does he do? Well, Paul is in jail and he's concerned for his friends in Philippi who are struggling with opposition. Can you imagine being the church in Philippi? Paul's rocked off, right? There's still a church in Philippi. Do you think everyone is happy that they're there? They face opposition daily. And there's a little bit of niggle in the church, and Paul's writing to them about that. He's wanting to point them to Jesus to say, the answers to your problems are in Jesus. And he says, I'm going to talk about my life and how I've found peace and security and joy and hope and a future in Jesus. Wonderful. And so he writes to send them some news. He writes to thank them for the gift that they sent him. He writes to encourage them to run the race with perseverance. He writes about his concerns that they stop fighting. And he writes, I think, mostly because he's friends with them and he just loves them. This is the most friendly letter that you'll find in the whole New Testament. He's never angry with the Philippians. He just loves them to bits. So in winter, we're going to enjoy the warmth and the joy of Paul's relationship with the Philippian church. Well, how's it organized? It's four chapters in Philippians. Are we going to speak 10 messages across this term? Roughly like this. Joy in living is chapter one. Joy in serving is chapter two. Joy in knowing Jesus is chapter three. And then joy in resting in Jesus is chapter four. So what should we apply? That's a lot of background information, isn't it? Your brain's full. What should we apply? Well, we've seen tonight that salvation is for anyone. It's for a mature businesswoman. It's for a used and abused slave woman. It's for a Roman public servant. Everyone is able to be saved. And tonight, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, tonight is a great day to get saved. However, if you know Jesus, there's a wonderful encouragement in the book of Philippians, which I'm looking forward to us doing. It says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So as we go through the book of Philippians, I want you to hear encouragement for you, not just to start following Jesus, but to continue in following him. And we'll need encouragement in that because Philippians will tell us about opposition. If you stand for Jesus today, you will be opposed. Here's what Philippians will tell us. For it is being granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Hey church, how's that for a great promise? Not only do you get to believe in him, you get to join me in suffering. Now, that'd be a pretty sucky message, except Paul says this is the best thing we can do. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain in what he says. That's what he says. It's so beautiful. Here's the note that is distinctive in Philippians. Here's the thing. Here's the reason. We will stand up for salvation. We'll proclaim the gospel. We'll face opposition, but we'll do so with great joy. Great joy. And so Paul says, and we're going to hear in this series, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. There's hope even as we stand for Jesus. Let me pray for us. 
Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be committed to being ambassadors of yours, that we would be people who would be partners in taking the good news out that many people might be saved. Father, we are reminded and we're probably a little bit scared and humbled to know that you have said that we will suffer as we do it. But Father, I pray that we might know your joy in the process, a deep and abiding joy and a peace that passes all understanding. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right. Now, did anyone remember that we're going to have Q&A tonight? Q&A, opportunity, ask a question. Something that I spoke about that you'd like to know a little bit more about. Um, are there any questions for us tonight? Yep, Tom. Yeah, really interesting. So why doesn't Paul pull out his Roman citizenship prior to the bit where he says afterwards, after he's beaten up, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, and they go, oops, we're going to escort you out really nicely and send you on your way because we're a bit embarrassed because we beat up a Roman citizen without a trial. Why didn't he pull that card out earlier? I suspect because the riot was too strong. And the ability to stand up and say, oh, um, if everyone could just stop beating me for a second, I know, pipe down, pipe down, just listen carefully. I have Roman citizenship. I'd like to have a nice orderly trial, please. I just think things went ballistic. And a bit like Jesus' crucifixion, sane order was not followed because of the, I won't say bloodlust, but the stupidity and the power of an angry crowd overwhelms due process. And that's what the magistrates are embarrassed about the next day. Um, so yeah, I think it's a good question. And I suspect in God's providence, uh, he allowed it to happen. However, I don't think Paul would have chosen to do it if he could avoid it. Is that fair enough? Okay. Yeah. Another question. Yeah. Go, Henry. Yeah, so, so essentially, why does he get beaten up? And why, why don't they just move him on or whatever? I, I think what we, what we see in a number of cases, happens in Ephesus as well, is that uh, a group of people recognise their economic advantage is gone. And it just, that is their God for all intents and purposes. You take that away, I'm going to be angry and I'm going to pursue you. And although it should have just taken a slap on the wrist to say, don't do that anymore, um, they just get so overwhelmed with anger that they go to violence in a way that they shouldn't. So there's a riot in Ephesus because in Ephesus, Paul has been preaching Jesus and what that's meant is less people are worshipping the goddess Diana in the city of Ephesus. The people that make statues for Diana are going out of business and they start a riot in the city to look after their economic advantage. Pretty crazy. Um, but it does show you the power of the gospel to change society, I think, and then to impact the hip pocket pretty challenging stuff. Yeah, I hope that's helpful, mate. Uh, someone else? One more question? No? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Richard. Yes. 
Yeah, it's absolutely essential. Yeah. So the first two converted people were women. It probably wouldn't have been normally noted. Do you think that matters? I think it absolutely matters. We see in Luke's gospel and then in Acts as well, Luke goes out of his way to tell us about women. Um, he actually says in a number of cities, he'll say, a, a few people were, were converted and not a few prominent Greek women, he'll often say. Okay? And he also tells us, he's the one that tells us that women supported Jesus' ministry as he traveled around. Luke is very passionate about telling us about the place of women and it would have been highly unusual. Okay? This would have mattered to no one else that there were women who were converted. Okay? And what it's showing us is that women, who would be surprised, women are of immense value in the kingdom of God just as men are. But the raising of them up would have been absolutely countercultural, and so you really worth, it's worth pointing that out, and that's what I was trying to do.